Welcome everyone, this is Christy Balsells, Executive Director of MitoAction, and today is Friday, December 6th. It's our last teleconference of the year 2013, that is hard to believe, and we're going to be talking today about helping your child prepare for independence and transition for kids with mitochondrial disease, but also for kids who have chronic illnesses um, and who may also have medical accessories like tubes and lines and pumps that um, require a lot of hands-on support. Joining us today as our speakers are Ann Weaver, who is a consumer advocate for Thrive Rx and also a parent of a 19-year-old son with chronic health issues. So Ann um, is able to wear both her professional and her mom hat when talking today, uh, and we're really excited to have you and your su- the support from Thrive Rx, Ann. So welcome. Thank you. And also joining us today is Dr. Shaw, who is the medical director of the Chronic Illness Transition Program at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, Dr. Shaw is uh, very enthusiastic, and I can tell just from my interactions with him preparing for this meeting that he is uh, quite passionate about um, really helping his patients, particularly around um, this issue of transition for kids with complex medical illnesses. So, um, Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Should I start? Yeah, so so we're going to go ahead and let everybody jump in. Let me just say again, if you're looking for the slides to follow along, if you're listening live or if you're listening later to the podcast, you can follow those along at mitoaction.org slash transition. So, Dr. Shaw, yes, without any further ado, I'll hand it over to you. Well, thanks so much for uh, having me, and I uh, hope that uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, and help all the families out there. It's great to hear some of your voices. Um, and um, so, you know, I want to just set the stage a little bit. Ann and I have done this before, and I think that the way we uh, we do it comes out nicely. I'll talk a little bit about sort of how pediatricians, I'm a general pediatrician by background, and I've taken on this transition role at Lurie Children's Hospital, formerly known as Children's Memorial Northwestern University uh, in Chicago. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about how the pediatric world likes to think about transition. It's a very general approach um, and a very sort of general, uh, some of the things may be general, and I hope that people can sort of, and Anne will help also, I think finding ways to make this a lot more practical, and it's worked well in the past when I've done this before, so I hope it works well for you guys uh, uh, this time around. So um, starting uh, slide one, we're talking kind of about transition. The second slide is just a disclosure slide. I have no disclosures um, uh, of any sort uh, relating to this. Um, The objectives of this, you know, we want to talk about sort of what we mean by transition, Uh, some of the facts and the challenges and the barriers that exist, and hopefully giving you guys some tips and resources. Uh, the presentation is, is, is initially sort of designed around uh, educators or healthcare providers, but I think that we can really tailor this uh, to work for families also um, and talk about things that, um, that are important to you guys, and uh, hopefully you'll get some, some good tips out of it. Uh, on slide four, we talk about sort of the way healthcare transition is de- defined, and I think that the important thing to realize with this statement, it says, for those of you who are maybe not everybody's looking at the slide, the purposeful and planned movement of adolescents and young adults with chronic physical and medical conditions from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare systems. It's a big, long, fancy phrase. I think that the real good thing to take out of it for parents and for providers alike is that it's, it's a purposeful and planned movement. And this is sort of a change in thinking over the last 10 to 20 years. 
with our kids doing better and and uh, having a prospect of a, a, a successful and promising adult life. Um, we really want to make sure this wasn't necessarily the case 20 years ago. And people, when they talked about transition at that time, they would really talk about the transfer of care to the adult provider saying, oh, I'm a pediatrician, you're 21, you're 19, you're 20, you're 21. Here's an adult provider, you know, uh, they can help you better. They can help you from here on out. Whereas we really want to think of this now, and I think for families too, to really think of this as this is a planned movement that starts when you're younger. And I think a lot of parents mentioned that earlier, and uh, and we heard that earlier too in the conversation, was that uh, it's a planned and purposeful movement. And there's really a system of care that we're dealing with now, not necessarily going just from the pediatrician to the internist, but rather from the pediatric system of care to the adult system of care. Some discouraging facts about transition uh, when they do the surveys and they look, um, children don't really say that transition is being discussed. Parents aren't really saying that transition is being discussed. And unfortunately, less than about 50% of pediatricians really report assisting with transition. And so a lot of this is because of the lack of resources, and this is the kind of thing we're trying to change from a system-wide basis. So hopefully you guys, as you go through this, uh, as the years coming by, have heard more about it. Now, this survey was done in 2009, and even in the last four years, there's been a lot of progress in pediatricians and various subspecialty groups, including genetics. And I know in our institution, genetics is, plays a, a large part, um, are really moving forward with their own transition programs. And for those of you guys who are followed at uh, some tertiary care centers around the country, hopefully have seen that change over the last four years and your providers are addressing transition. Um, and so I think that's a little uh, system-wide change that we're hoping to get. Um, some of the barriers, and you guys can really imagine uh, a lot of this uh, already, but from pediatric providers, they're not finding adult physicians who are uh, care, who can care for some of these uh, chronic illnesses. The adult physicians don't necessarily know a lot about it, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the solutions for that. Adult providers have really reported the same kind of thing, lack of training. They also don't have the same setup for meeting all the needs of, uh, of, of, of some of the families that, that come because families obviously have various needs, everything ranging from psychosocial needs to ancillary support from, from nutrition to... Uh, to social work, to case management, and things like that. Um, the adult providers report a lack of coordinated transfer, and some of that, a lot of that is going to fall on the pediatric practice. And unfortunately, when that ends up happening, what ends up happening a lot of times is a lot of it falls on the family advocate, um, whoever that may be in your family, be it the parent or, uh, or somebody else that you might know that might be an advocate for your family who can help coordinate that transfer of care from the pediatric world to the adult world. Families and patients, you guys have reported or uh, the logical stuff too. There's a difference in culture between pediatric and adult models. And there's the obvious nervousness of having, being cared for by a certain group uh, for 18 to 20 years and developing that trust and building that relationship and then all of a sudden having to go to somebody who doesn't necessarily know as much about you and your family and your child um, as you do or as your previous provider group did. And the next slide, I'm on slide seven now. I realize that not everybody, I guess the slides aren't moving along, right? Um, I'm on slide seven now, which says the pediatric versus adult models of healthcare. And some of these differences, again, are pretty obvious. I mean, in the pediatric world, we tend to be provider and parent controlled. Um, uh, on the adult world, the patient tends to be responsible for, for stuff. 
Um, in the pediatric world, we do offer generally a lot more comprehensive multidisciplinary clinics. So for a lot of the, you know, the, the conditions we're talking about, uh, specifically in genetics, um, for example, we have a Marfan's clinic where you would see genetics, you would see cardiology, you would see ophthalmology, um, and uh, maybe even GI and neurology in the same setting. And some places might have it and some places don't. In the adult world, again, this is off the cuff. This tends to be just on average a little bit less. Uh, in the pediatric world, we have the case management and social work support. In the adult world, not necessarily the case. Sometimes you may have to go out and seek that care yourself. Um, and certainly uh, in the adult world, the patient and, and the family generally have to be more proactive to get some of these services. This is a lot of stereotype, and some of this can be um, demonstrated in an actual concrete way, but some of this is stereotype. So we'll talk a little bit about sort of the process of transitioning and what we talk about in our pediatric clinics and what families can sort of look to and use as, as, as a very general guideline with the caveat that all of this that I talk about is, has to be individually tailored. Uh, so, for example, a lot of places, including ours, has a transition clinic where we see patients specifically just for transitioning. So we help coordinate the care, and we really try and tailor the care to everybody's developmental abilities. That's a big one that's going to play in the next, like, five or six slides that I'm talking about. Just please keep in mind that um, these lists and things are tried to be as general as possible to create a general approach, but we all know that a lot of this stuff has to be very individually tailored depending on everybody's life situation and developmental abilities. So on the next slide, we talk about when transition should begin. The age 11 to 14, 13 has really been thrown out there. And there's some evidence as to why a transition should begin at this process. And we really think that youth are the most receptive at that point to future planning. So you ask a 16 to 17-year-old what you want to do in the future, and they're thinking sort of next year and stuff. And when you're talking about 11-year-old, they're very excited about their future. And um, and uh, it's a good time to start approaching that. There's also a less of a gap between peers. So two 17-year-olds are thought to be a little bit more different than two 11-year-olds. Uh, so you can use a nice general approach for an 11, 12-year-old that you couldn't necessarily use for a 16, 17-year-old. And when we talk about transition beginning, we're really talking about introducing the topic. Uh, like I said, we're, a lot of this stuff, what I talk about is comparing to about 10, 15 to 20 years ago when people didn't really think of this as an issue or a topic in and of itself. And it would come as a shock to a lot of families at the age of 17 and 18. I mean, they all knew it was coming along, but it was just never brought up. And we all know that can sometimes be a little bit of a shock if just you knew it, it was very logical, it makes sense, I'm supposed to transition, but no one's ever really ever talked to me about it. So we really want providers and families to start thinking about it, you know, around the age of 12 and 13. And I heard from some of the comments earlier, 12 or 13-year-olds uh, and uh, even 9. So it, it, it's great that um, people are thinking about it early, and I think that's part of a national trend. Um, in the next slide, I heard uh, uh, somebody talk about really getting their child, children to be as independent as possible. And I think that in our, we have a life skills program and we have our transition clinic and we have various other programs at our particular institution. That is really the focus. That's really what we want to stress. I think we talk about the difference between the pediatric and the adult model of care, uh, really focusing around this issue of 
really preparing our, our, our children and our, our families uh, to know the most about themselves, to have the skills that they need to have to, uh, to take care of their health as, to the best of their ability, uh, and to have that feeling of a responsibility around their own health care, which is certainly true in the adult world. Um, and I think I have a slide coming up later that kind of talks about the changing responsibilities as you move to, uh, to becoming a young adult. So this is a big part of what pediatric institutions have sort of taken on uh, and how families can really do this uh, at home and start thinking about it. And the next slide shows an example of a chest checklist. This one happens to be publicly available. It's done by the Illinois chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which received a grant to sort of develop these tools. And there are hundreds of these checklists that exist. And no one of them is better than another. I think one of the great we get approached from a lot of foundations um, and a lot of national organizations um, that provide advocacy for their specific condition. And one of the things that a lot of these organizations have done on their websites is to create a checklist specific to their group. Um, uh, Marfans being one, we did a conference with them the other, the other year, uh, Ole Foundation being another one. Um, um, that can really start by helping their families, creating a checklist that's very specific to the needs of, uh, of for example, mitochondrial uh, conditions, um, and uh, and really focusing on uh, what that group specifically needs, be it enteral feeding, be it learning how to take care of G-tube lines, uh, or certain, so for diabetes, for example, they focus a lot on self-care. Um, for spina bifida, they focus on self-cathing, catheterizations, and knowing your skills around that and having your supplies and how to order them. So having a checklist specific to your condition is, is, a, is a nice uh, additive. The general checklists tend to revolve around a lot of general skills. Um, but again, it's a nice place to start. So some examples of things uh, on the next slide, on uh, slide 11, uh, things like knowledge, obviously knowing the name of your conditions, which is not as easy as one may think. I mean, talking it over with your provider is a great way to start. Knowing the names of your medicines, knowing the contact information. Um, uh, I tried to throw in some specific things uh, Christy was helping me out with um, on uh, for mitochondrial diseases, thinking about things like uh, any precautions you might need for certain anesthesia and hydration protocols, um, uh, things that you can or can't take uh, there, uh, depending on your condition. So talking this over with providers, thinking of it, what kind of things you would want your you to know or your child to know as they move on, and depending on the independence and depending on where they're going. If you know, we run into a lot of families that go away to college uh, or are just kind of moving out, and obviously we'll be set with a whole um, another set of providers. We certainly found that families who have who are confident in their child's knowledge and their child's skills. Uh, are more comfortable letting go, and I know that that's a big issue for a lot of uh, families, letting go and how to let go. So starting with this and, you know, feeling comfortable with your child and their knowledge and things like that is really helpful. On the next slide, on slide 12, just some examples of knowledge um, and things you can do in your office. Um, we all know that, uh, you know, our conditions can be complicated and they're hard to explain. There's some certain groups that have talked about describing their illnesses in three sentences, and it can be three sentences per each condition that you have. So, you know, just knowing how to describe it. Um, it helps a lot. Uh, as you guys all know, uh, the more sometimes you have when you talk to new providers and doctors and things like that, if the more you have, the less likely people are to read it or, or, uh, 
or, or listen. So uh, unfortunately, that's the unfortunate reality because everybody's time is limited. So being able to describe in a very concise manner is, is a very useful tool. And it's nice to kind of talk it over with your providers on how I would go about describing this to somebody if I end up in an emergency room out of state or out of town. Um, is a great way to go. Have them learning about their medical history and then having them make a portable medical record. And we'll give you some examples about that in a, in a minute. We'll talk about that too. Um, but we really do tout this portable uh, medical record in the transition world um, um, as a tool for learning and as a tool for approaching emergency rooms and new providers and for transmitting information between providers. So those are just some examples on ways that uh, your families can start getting uh, some knowledge around it. Skills, the basic skills, how to make an appointment, how to fill a subscription, how to order your meds and supplies. Some for, for those of you guys who have um, uh, lines or extra enteral uh, tube feeds, caring for them, you know, as best you can. And I know this is a big issue, and obviously this can be a talk in and of itself. Um, but in the interest of sort of touching base on all the uh, the general stuff, this is, I know, a big skill and a big area of concern. So on the next slide, we have some examples that we do in our clinic and things like that. Um, Definitely want your child to speak as much as they can independently to the doctor uh, or to your care team or to your whoever your uh, your providing team is. Um, and obviously, don't be offended if your if your provider talks directly to the to the child. That's what we try and do, even while the parent is in the room. And as soon as they get old enough, uh, no matter what their abilities are, we try and talk directly to them. Um, at the end of the appointment, we try and have the patient themselves kind of go out there, the child themselves, to the front desk to make the next one. It's a great skill. I think it's one of those things that um, people are really nervous about when they're young. Uh, but once you've done it once, it's just a matter of developing the confidence to do it. Um, and then having them kind of come in and prepare some questions to ask. I think uh, some of the times people, uh, we, get a, we get kids who come in uh, sometimes who are just nervous about saying, this is what happened to me over the la last year. This is what I want to ask you. And uh, just having them prepare some questions really helps. Um, talking about the responsibility on the next slide, you know, we talked about knowledge, skills, and responsibility. I think this is a nice little chart we try and, uh, we try and talk about the difference between adult and pediatric care and the difference between when people go from being young adults and being kids, um, where the provider and the parent are really the providers of care, and the young person is really the recipient of care, to when they're young adults and adults, where they're really supervising their own care, and the provider and the parent basically become a consultant and a resource uh, that the young person uses to sort of manage their care, and hopefully a, a trusted resource, and hopefully some uh, one that uh, they, can, they can trust and follow. Uh, adherence uh, is a big issue. Um, you know, we definitely try and encourage compliance, and I, I don't know if the, you know that that can be an issue. I think for anybody, um, and we just want to make sure that you know, as parents and as providers, that we ask directly about barriers. Uh, we certainly have. Uh, if we don't ask directly about barriers, I think that uh, we assume a lot of things that somebody doesn't want to be adherent because they don't like the medicine, they don't like, they have some social stigma around it. But it could be something as simple as a misunderstanding around the scheduling of drugs. We certainly had that case uh, pile up where um, somebody felt like they were waking up at noon every day and they felt like they were supposed to take a drip medicine twice a day and they felt like they missed their 8 o'clock medicine because they thought they shouldn't, they can't take it later than that. So... 
um, we definitely want to uh, ask directly about barriers. And using resources, using technology to your advantage. We know that a lot of people nowadays have uh, cell phones, and we certainly, and I'll, and I'll talk about some of these resources in a second. I have a few slides at the end about uh, some specific ones that are pretty interesting to use. So using that as best you can to improve adherence. So from the pediatric, and the next slide goes on to other things to assess. So from the pediatric institution, I think that we definitely want to focus on the medical stuff, but we also try and take a comprehensive approach to transitioning. And we know that there's a lot of other things involved, and I think one of the big ones here is guardianship. And that has to do a lot with the developmental, uh, your developmental abilities, and everybody's a little bit different. And every family is a very different personal choice, so we know that every family is uh, very different. So we do like to take a little bit of involvement, and basically what we like, want to do is just make sure families understand the wide range of guardianship opportunities available. Uh, we do have legal represent uh, legal partnerships that we that we partner with here around the city of Chicago uh that can assist further in this in this area and um but for the purposes of this conversation I think that I just want families to know that there's a wide range of guardianship from everything ranging from full-blown guardianship which is basically like the the child remains your child and you have authority over anything um whether it comes to healthcare whether it comes to finances whether it comes to living all decision making power just like you would if your child was a minor all the way down to the child the young adult rather once they turn 18 giving that power to the parent and can take it back anytime they want but they give that power to for the purposes of convenience uh for the purposes of uh, sharing medical records um, uh, for the purposes of not being able to enter into contracts, and that's really the big idea behind guardianship. So signing for credit cards and banking and things like that. And you know, uh, power of attorney uh, is more of that giving up your power and being able to take it back anytime you want. And there's different areas: financial, healthcare, estate, things like that. We definitely want to address insurance and benefits, and we have social work that comes to every one of our uh, uh, clinic, sees every one of our clinic patients, for example, and that runs through making sure that health insurance, especially nowadays being as complicated as it is, uh, make sure that every child and every young adult as they move, because insurance does change as you move into adulthood for a lot of people. Benefits, a lot of people don't realize that if they didn't, weren't eligible based on income levels when they were younger, based on their parents' income levels, they may be eligible when they're older for things like SSI once they turn 18 and 19. And future financial planning, so everything from special needs trusts um, to just simply, um, again, the benefits and, 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 and uh, banking, things like that. Community resources, we want to make sure that pediatricians around the area and that families know about different things uh, in Illinois. And a lot of these are very local and state-specific, but we want to know that people know about all the waiver programs, all the assisted living programs, all the recreational programs that are available, and career and vocation is a big one. We know that uh, not only, you know, I think the healthcare world tends to think that people that are doing well in their healthcare will do well in other things, but it goes the other way too, where people that have a vocational, clear-cut educational plan will do better in their health care too. So we want to make sure that families have a good plan for that. Um, I'm going to let Ann get started. So I'm going to kind of jump through some of these other slides. I just, these are just examples of resources that exist. So here's, for example, a portable medical record. They come in one pagers, they come in three pagers. And I know that families can carry around a lot of stuff. I think it's it's worth it for most families to try and condense it as much as possible to a one-page, two-page, or three-pagers. Again, the axiom goes, that the less you have, the more likely it is that somebody's going to look at it and read it. So um, uh, it's, just, it's a great way, it's a great thing to kind of put your effort into, and it'll help you feel a lot more organized, too. 
So we create one of these for everybody in our clinic. And the next two slides, 19 and 20, are just examples of other portable medical kind of summaries. Um, slide 21, I'm going to the insurance. Uh, insurance for young adults is challenging. Uh, you know, this can be, again, a whole talk in and of itself. Um, just want to know that it is that it is challenging, that people do change. Uh, your insurance can change when you turn to adulthood, and uh, everything's a little bit different. So definitely make sure you look into that and address that, and it should be on any checklist that you sort of run through. Um, supporting patients that lose insurance, the next slide, 22, uh, just making sure that uh, using the site healthcare.gov, and I know that in the news we've heard a lot about it. Um, your states have various sites and things like that, and I think a lot of this is somewhat local, and again, we can give a whole talk on that themselves. Um, prescription medications and challenging medications, I want to bring up needymeds.org and making sure that people know that site. We use that site. It's, it's a site where a lot of pharmaceutical and supply companies have gotten together to provide medicines for, uh, for people that lose insurance. So um, I think your pharmacists and your uh, providers can know about that. And if they don't, it's a good resource for, for families to have. And some other transition resources, and I'm going on slide 23 that I want to uh, go through. On slide 24, this is the MyMed schedule. This is an online site that can help you. It sends you a text message. Uh, you program in your medicines and your times and anything else that you might need, and it sends you a text message. But again, it's only helpful if you actually have your medicine on you at the time that you get your text messaging, um, and if you have a text messaging plan, because we know that those can get expensive too. The next slide, slide 25, is the example of our site and on our Lurie Children's site. We host, we have a whole host of PDF files that you can download on um, everything from guardianship to SSI to finding new insurance, finding adult provider. We have our own version of a checklist on there. And there's lots of uh, sites. I mean, your local institution that you might go to probably has a site like this. They're, they're popping up all over the place now. Um, uh, the future directions, I think this is something that, like, for any of you that are involved in advocacy within your foundation, uh, we generally give these kinds of recommendations for the, for the foundation itself, is developing a formal checklist, something specific, um, development of a uh, resource, or so like a website um, for families, development of a one-page fact sheet for various providers. There's a group uh, in Indianapolis that did this for a lot of different conditions, and I think adult providers, remember, one of the main barriers for adult providers that they didn't know a lot about the conditions that they were getting. So having that one-page fact sheet, that was one of the things they asked for in a lot of different surveys of adult providers that can help them learning, primary care internists learn kind of how to manage uh, some of these complex conditions. Um, and then understanding some of the most common issues and locating community resources. So I want to uh, end up by saying kind of things to remember. Uh, remember, it's a planned process, and we want to make sure that uh, people plan for this. Um, a transition is a process, not an event. Uh, and starting early, I think that was a big deal. Starting early, and I think I heard other people kind of mention that. I'm glad that uh, that people are thinking about it a little bit uh, earlier now. So I think I'm going to uh, uh, bump it off to Anne now, who's going to go into a lot more of the practical aspects and things like that. And um, and I think we'll be open for questions a little bit later after that. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw, and, you know, so many wonderful resources you mentioned during your talk, so I'll be sure to um, pull those out as well, some of those websites, and, and help people be able to find those easily, because um, I didn't know about some of those, and those sound great, so great, thank, thank you. you. Um, so, Anne, welcome. Um, maybe you want to introduce yourself a little again to remind us, and then Go ahead and jump right in. And if anyone's joining us late, you can follow the slides for Anne at mitoaction.org slash transition. Thank you a lot, Christy. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak today. Um, and thank you, Dr. Shaw, for the insight that you provided us. 
Um, my name is Ann Weaver. I'm a consumer advocate with ThriveRx. We're a home nutrition company that provides both parental and intro nutrition support. And I'm also a parent of a 19-year-old son who um, has required nutrition support since um, since birth. And so um, we have been working over the years with transitioning and have worked um, with Thrive, had the opportunity to develop some transition materials specifically related to those people on nutrition support. But um, when I talk about it today, I try to make it as general as possible to kind of help those who aren't on nutrition, but to think about the process. And so when, when I think about transition, you know, our children's diagnosis and disease states may be different, but many of our journeys started in the same place. It may have, not, it may have begun with our, children's, our child's birth or later in life, or we may have been told that our child would not survive, and we've wondered if they would make it. Um, we spent probably a lot of time diligently caring for our children, learning everything we could to care for them, and even might worry about them a little bit more than our other kids, and, and maybe even more overprotective. And yet in the blink of an eye, days, as Dr. Shaw said, turn into weeks and become years, and our children grow and defy the odds. And the question, you know, we ask ourselves is, will they be ready, um, and will we be ready to let go? Um, and more importantly, will they be ready to care for themselves? And as I said before, Dr. Shaw shared some great insight and information. What, what needs to happen, my hope today is to share how you can take that information and develop a plan to guide yourself to test. I'm going to move on to slide number two, and I will cover barriers that interfere with transition and hopefully ways that will help you overcome them, methods to help your child acquire the knowledge and skills and advocacy advocate um, that will allow them to be as independent as possible. Move on to the second slide. Or the, I'm sorry, the third slide. Parents want to protect their children. I think that's a kind of a, a, a natural um, response that we have when um, we take care of children, but it's also our role as parents to prepare children to become independent. And this is a struggle that parents have regardless of whether there's an underlying health condition. And so when you add the health issues, mitochondrial disease, or any kind of other um, condition, it becomes even more um, difficult for us to do that. And I think it's important to remember that preparing our children for independence with or without health issues depends on us offering them opportunities and giving them responsibilities. We also need to offer choices and allow them to make the decisions. And also depends on them realizing their strengths and building on them but also identifying ways in which limitations can be managed or overcome. And I think that's an important consideration, especially when you're dealing with um, a mitochondrial um, disease state. As to slide number four, um, what I'd like to talk about are some of the barriers that come into play um, when we're dealing with transition. And I, and I talk of this from a parent's perspective on, on what we face. I mean, our history, what we've experienced with our children, raising them when they have a chronic condition, what they've gone through, emergency rooms or ICU care, um, building relationships with physicians can, um, can create, that history can create barriers, making it difficult for us to turn the reins over to our children. Um, be it fear of the unknown or fear that our kids will not take care of themselves or making the wrong decision. And I think the fear of losing our child that oftentimes hits us to the core to stand in our way. Um, loss of control also becomes a factor because we're no longer, we're asked to no longer be in charge. And we've built this world where we feel that only we can take care of our child 
and it's because of that diligence that the kids are doing so well. We also face the loss of potential identity because many parents oftentimes become so involved in the care of their child that they're no longer just the parent, that they become the doctor, mom, and dad, an advocate for their children over the years. And last but certainly not least, trust or the lack of trust um, feeds into our willingness to let go. And it's not just trusting that our child will be able to manage their own care, but also, as Dr. Shaw talked about, trusting that the medical team will support our child and continue to listen to them to help them maintain the best health possible. So the question is, what do we do about it? And I'm going to move on to the next slide as we look at it. First, I think it's important as parents to look deep into ourselves um, and, and, and face some of those concerns. You know? So examine what are your fears. And then to look more closely at those fears and, and look at whether or not um, those fears are likely, probable, or unlikely. <clears throat> and for those that are very likely to happen, the concerns that are likely to happen, to work to address, um, help your child address those areas of concern by identifying if there's a skill set or some knowledge that would help them better um, manage that concern. And so to, to work and focus on those areas that are most likely to happen, to prepare your child for that, and then once they've mastered that, to move on to other areas. Also to examine as parents what you feel um, your need is to control. Um, and can that responsibility be turned over to their child or to gradually give them control as much as they are able? And if it's if the child, and I think, you know, at this point, it's important to remember in mitochondrial disease, because of the progressive nature that can happen, and depending on where your child's disease state, there's a possibility that they will never be able to be totally independent in their care, but there is, is there a way that we can develop a relationship with another support person that will allow your child some autonomy in their care? And, um, and recognizing that not all kids will be able to do everything from their, for themselves, that they still may need to support, um, and that you know we're still there, but to give them the opportunity to do as much for themselves as they're able. Um, when we look at identity as being a barrier, how do you identify yourself? You know, as parents, we need to look towards evolving from a caregiver to a coach. And as this happens, parents should consider finding ways to fill that void that once filled the caregiving and take on activities of interest. By educating our children and allowing them to practice their knowledge and skills, you develop trust in their abilities and can identify where more teaching and training may need to occur. And I think it's important to remember that we're not walking out of our children's lives, but moving into the background. And, there's, and, and we're there still to be there speaking at. And that may become a dynamic process as their health, um, health status changes. So that you know you can step into the background, but when they might be having um, have greater medical needs or their condition is less stable, that you can be there to support them. And then when they're back on track again, to be able to step back out and allow them the autonomy that they had before. Moving on to slide number six, one of the things that I want to stress about um, transition, and Dr. Shaw talked about this a lot, is preparation. And the more we prepare our children to care for themselves the more empowered they will be, and the greater the likelihood they will be able to reach, reach their potential in self-care. So the first thing that I would like to talk about is acquiring the knowledge and how we go about doing it. 
And I think it would be really great. It was easy for us to connect two heads together and transfer all the information in, from our head into our child. But that's not always the possibility. And as Dr. Shaw said, sometimes there's a lack of receptiveness. I think, as Dr. Shaw said before, first it's necessary to know what your child's needs are. He covered, um, Dr. Shaw covered many of the basic um, medical condition, history, medications, and allergies. But um, our kids also need to know the disease and therapy-specific information. Um, every child with MITO has different needs. It could be central line and tube care. It could be recognizing signs of an autonomic crisis, um, seizures, hydration status, energy levels, and then also how to address each of these issues. Some ways that you can do it, um, I have listed on slide number nine, and that is um, we could, um, while most literature talks about you know kids transitioning that 11 to 14 um, age, I think that one of the things that um, I really believe in is that if we look at our children's knowledge and understanding about their medical condition as a daily life skill, that we incorporate the knowledge and understanding and skill development as a daily life skill like we would any other. And so we could begin when kids are young and small by telling um, telling them stories about themselves, reading books about their medical condition, or writing a book about them, talking about their care as it's performed, just like we do when, they, when we tie shoes or when we brush teeth, and to perform, uh, provide them opportunities to answer questions about their medical conditions. If they know the words in the latest song, they can certainly begin to recite and approximate the types of meds that they're on, the allergies that they have, or what foods are safe foods for them. Um, as we get older, and I'm moving on to slide number nine, we can begin to discuss choices and help them evaluate pros and cons and assess, assess their knowledge by allowing them to answer questions at doctor visits and then filling in the missing pieces. Um, we can help by providing tools about general health, and I know that Dr. Um, Shaw had mentioned some of those, as well as specific disease information, which can be obtained through MitoAction. Um, Thrive has a number of resources on our website, as well as the Oli Foundation for those who are on nutrition support. We should allow kids to be involved in the decision process, how and when things are done, procedures and medications, as long as it fits into a medically acceptable range and then discuss how they feel they would handle certain situations. For example, if your child has issues with ongoing hydration, how do they know that? What are the symptoms that they recognize um, that are part of their dehydration you know, status? And then how, how, do they, how do they think that they should handle it? There's also a variety of skills that kids need to have in order to take care of themselves, be it from ordering medications and, and supplies to make appointments and caring for lines and tubes and ostomies. And I think, once again, I encourage you to look at each of these as a daily life skill like you would any other and consider, consider developing and building these skills slowly, similar to driving a car. And I think that you know none of us would consider putting a child behind the seat of the car and letting them drive but from the moment that we buckle our kids in their car seat for the very first time to every time we take them out of the car, they observe the rules of the road, the, what the red light, you know, green light means, what stop, what stop signs mean, and they learn about safety. And we model hopefully good driving skills as we go along, and then we send them to driving school, and they practice, practice, practice before they, we let them out on their own. And so I think that we need to consider that. Sometimes we kind of put those medical things as, well, they're too medical, and we don't think them as daily life. And so um, I encourage you to do that. 
And so we should begin, we should start small when the kids are young and gradually build that skill set. Number 13, some of the things that we can do, first of all, is start to identify that skill set. Um, as Dr. Shaw had mentioned, um, Thrive has developed um, a skills checklist for TPN and enteral consumers, um, and it helps you think about um, what types of things they need to do if they are in nutrition support, but also you need to think individually and, and, and encourage you know, your child to think about it. What kinds of things do they need to know how to do in order to be independent? Um, if we start small, we can begin with little ones by simple things such as helping with put supplies away and begin to recognize what each supply is um, by learning to wash their hands and the importance of hand washing. And then we can also utilize things like toys um, by putting lines and tubes in toys and incorporate that as part of their play as we would any other daily life skill. As the child gets older, we can begin to talk about what you're doing, if you're um, giving medications, if you're helping administer a tube feed, that, that we talk about that process um, and encourage them to watch what you're doing, even if you don't feel that they're ready to care um, for themselves. They can still see and observe how things are done. And, and it's not uncommon for kids, when they see a process on a regular basis, they will tell you when you're doing something different. And it's, and it's a great opportunity because it gives our children um, the knowledge and understanding of what your home protocol is so that when they go to other care providers or they're in the hospital, they understand when a procedure is being done the way it should, when it's typically being done at, um, at home, and they can provide um, feedback to the hospital, you know, that's not how we do this, we do this first. And, and even young children are able to do that. Um, and it's important as kids go along and begin to be familiar with the, um, the skill sets that they need to have that they're provided with supervised opportunities. I know it can be easier um, for us as parents to do tasks for our children because we want to help out. Um, we may not have the patience, but it's crucial that our kids know how and become competent in caring for themselves. As your kids are able to take over um, much of their care, I encourage you um, to utilize outside training and professional support. Uh, Sometimes it's a lot easier to have someone feedback to your child's um, skills technique than it is to do yourself um, because it can reduce your anxiety and confrontation that's just normal confrontation that happens between parents and teens. Um, I think it's always okay, as I said before, to help out with their medical needs, but it's just critical that our kids are adequately trained and have mastered the skills. So how do we go about... Um, preparing our, our kids to advocate for themselves. And I think oftentimes they learn by watching us. And, and as advocates for our children, we need to use care in how we advocate for them because it's important for us to model positive interactions. We can begin slow when you're a child's advocate, but then we can begin, um, and, and you're the voice of your child when they're infants and, and don't have a voice of their own, but they can begin to be involved very early and encouraging them to express how they feel, when they feel good and when they don't feel good, and how to communicate this to you as well as professionals. When kids are little, I mean, something as simple as the, you know, the happy face pain scale or a red light, green light, or a thumbs up or down um, allows them to communicate how they're feeling and begin to have that self-reflection on what's going on with their bodies. I think it's also important for us to 
to model as best we can for our children positive relationships with the clinicians that they deal with on a regular basis um, with simple things as please and thank you. And I know that's hard sometimes, especially in the MITO community when um, it's a struggle sometimes to get docs to listen um, to your concerns and your, ch your child's concerns. So the, the types of things that can help with um, developing those advocacy skills include um, helping your child learn to listen to their body, empowering um, them by providing uh, choices and opportunities to develop good communication skills, as well as normalizing um, their experience with their disease and disease state. And so when we talk about reflection, um, I think it's important for, for the kids to be able to share how they feel, to know when they feel good, and know when they feel um, when they don't feel well, and then to be able to communicate that to you, and and to um, be able to make some decisions on how to handle that. So that if a child, we talked about, I mentioned this before about hydration issues. You know, how do you know that you're hydration? What are what are your signs and symptoms? And then how do you address that? What's the next step? What do you need to do if you're dehydrated? And so for them to be able to, to, to be involved in some of that thought process. Um, empowering our children to make choices. Um, it's important to offer choices of when things are done, of timing of schedules. It gives kids control in their life. And I think that control is an important thing that we struggle with as parents. And without a doubt, our kids do as well. As they get older, we can give them more um, input into the decision process. And I think um, what I've found in my experience um, is that we may not always agree with their decisions. And, and so we found it of value to discuss um, the decisions beforehand and to reflect on the decisions afterwards. Um, if we disagree with the choice, we explain why we disagree with the choice. It's just not my way or the highway. And that we might allow them to proceed as planned even if we disagree and if it works, to acknowledge that it worked. Um, and if it didn't, then to have them self-assess, you know, how things went and what they would do differently um, the next time it happened. Um, and I think, you know, as we go, as, as parents, we've done a lot of talking for our kids before they could um, talk. And taking a back seat is, is a challenge. Um, when you're used to being the... Um, communicator in a um, clinical visit, um, we tend to speak for our child. And so I think um, as you go forward um, with doctor's visits to always have, um, we've moved from talking um, for our son and then asking him if he had any additional questions to him now doing all the talking and then turning to us and saying, you know, do you have any other questions or is there anything else I missed? And so to put them in the driver's seat with communication, you can you can aid to this by discussing upcoming doctor visits with your child beforehand. You know what their concerns are, and and work together with them to make a list, and then to debrief after the visit to determine you know how do you think that visit went, what do you think you need to follow up on, and use lists and work together to make that so that they can develop those skills. I think last. Uh, it is just a real important one that we have found beneficial for our son and our family as a whole is that normalization process that it's important to recognize children can benefit from support as much as parents can and for us to provide opportunities for kids to connect. Um, children at a young age can benefit from connecting with children. Whether or not they communicate verbally with me, we've seen it at many OLE conferences where kids 
see another child with a backpack and tubing hanging out and how important it is that they recognize that there's someone else there like them. Um, they don't need to exchange words. There is a connection. It's also great for kids to have positive young adult role models, and you can achieve that through local and national support groups um, to reach out together as well as disease-specific support groups. And don't forget, there are camps for kids with chronic health issues as well, and there's specific ones for kids with mitochondrial disease. And it's an opportunity for our kids to feel a sense of nor normalcy. Um, and it's also an opportunity oftentimes for them to be able to um, begin to care for themselves in a safe environment where there's a full medical team behind them to help. Um, Thrive does have a list of uh, tips on our website which lists camp opportunities and how to prepare for that. So today I've talked about how to um, how parents can address and overcome hopefully the barriers that they face as they move forward with um, guiding their kids to independence, ways that they can um, help their children acquire knowledge and develop skills and learn to advocate. Um, I would like to share some re resources that we have available through our website. Um, Thrive has a transition toolkit. Um, it is composed of a number of different products. Um, skills checklist for kids, a parent's guide to independence, um, a review of steps that parents can take to help with independence and care. Um, we also work together with um, the, the Mito Action Group to produce the Jeremy Jones book, which is a book about a, a young child on tube feeding. And we also have a, a book for children who have central lines. And this is the first in a series of books for kids on TPN. Um, you can obtain any copies of these materials by requesting them via email. You can send your request to info at thriverx.net, or you can call our 800 no or our toll-free number at 888-684-7483. You can find more information about ThriveRx on Facebook or by visiting our website at thriverx.net. We offer a wide variety of tips and webinars about our clinic um, that can be found under our clinical tab, including help with school as well as college and support for the caregiver. Um, you can also find more information about our iThrive program, which has dietary information for those with dysmotility. Um, additionally, our parent company, BioRx, um, which provides IVR, IVIG, has information and resources for kids and young adults on IVIG therapy as well. Um, I thank you for the opportunity, Christy, to be part of this webinar, and I wish all those participants who are working with their kids to um, gain independence um, wish you well on your journey. Thank you so much. This has um, been so informative and really helpful, and so I want to have the opportunity to have some people ask some questions. So um, I'll open up the lines um, for questions now. So um, we can take questions. It's like a virtual classroom. If you'll just, um, if you feel comfortable, introduce yourself and then ask your question. If you want to address it specifically to either Anne or Dr. Shaw, um, please say so. Otherwise, uh, Anne and Dr. Shaw can tag team in their response, and we can consider this kind of an open discussion. So, who would like to ask a question? Hi, this is David Horn from the Seattle area. Hi, David. And I have a question. I know I noticed one thing mentioned in here about driving, and where can you get more information about that? And what is I don't know. For myocardial patients, is driving an issue for a lot of them? How does that work? How do I look into that? Um, I have no idea what to do next on that, because my daughter's kind of driving age almost, but 
Um, the region is not quite back yet, but I, I expect that someday it will be. So that's my okay, question. Okay, great now. question. So um, he's asking about um, driving, helping with, I guess, if you know anything specifically about um, probably rules, right, David, you know, related to having a medical condition and driving, and then if you have any advice about that. I agree, driving is is one of the biggest steps in independence and um yeah. and safety is an issue as well. So Dr. Shaw and Ann, any thoughts about that? Yeah. So it's a great question. This is Dr. Shaw. Um I'm not an expert in that uh, particular thing, but I think that most of the work that's been done has probably been set like the precedent that's been set is um uh this question comes up for kids with seizure disorders and stuff like that. Um there are the it, with, with physical disabilities, it's a lot easier in a sense that there are places that will do accommodations um, and can uh, and there's actually a state organizations like for example in our state um, I want to say it's do, uh, the, our division of rehab services in Illinois uh, can pay for some of those modifications and uh, I think it's it's easy. Um, not I mean I don't want to say easy. I want to say it's doable. Um, I think with uh, the rules around, I'm assuming you're possibly asking around the, the rules around kids with developmental disabilities or with intellectual disabilities, possibly you're asking about that um, as opposed to seizure disorders, which is like a flare-up type condition, or physical disabilities, which is requires more like vehicle modifications. Um, so if you're asking about intellectual disabilities, it's a lot grayer around that area. Um, I think we start a lot of times by asking, uh, for example, you know, how comfortable are you riding a bike? Can you go ride a bike by yourself? Um, in, 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 the, in the developmental way, like do you feel comfortable letting your daughter go out and ride a bike? Uh, do you feel comfortable with a stove? That's a basic question. So we actually talked it over with one of our driving rehab centers just to learn a little bit more about this issue. And this, these are the kind of questions that our, our, the driving rehab center around our area will run through when they get uh, clients essentially looking for um, driving, driving rehab. Uh, I mean, I think in the end, the uh, there is a medical form that our DMV will ask people to fill out, and a lot of physicians, if they're uncomfortable with filling it out, will get outside consultation from, or will ask families to get outside consultation on something from a place like the driving rehab center, for example, that 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 that, that we go to. Um, the school is also the first place to start. Uh, most schools run driver's ed programs, and they can possibly give some assistance. I believe some of the local laws are, are, are quite different. So, like I said, I'm not an expert in the area, but uh, the, when it revolves around the intellectual or developmental disabilities, the, the, the question is a little bit vaguer. And... Um, uh, like for example, seizures. I think there's a there's a there's a there's a number of months that you have to be seizure free before you can uh, apply. That's the law around Illinois. I believe that's the case. And then again, for physical disabilities, there are modifications. And you, again, the driving rehab center we go to focuses a lot on that. And they can actually work with you to get the state organizations to pay for the physical modifications for the vehicle. But the intellectual disabilities, there is a list of sort of questions that at least the center has. They have a whole book on it. And everything from, you know, can you tell time and read a clock to the attention deficit on, you know, um, if somebody comes in, can they, can you handle somebody cutting you off in the road and how you're going to react to that uh, all the way up to can you manage it? Do you cook on your own and do you feel comfortable with your children 
around the stove. And, and those are the kind of things that we suggest our young teens sort of get started at. If it's something that we feel like they can develop over time, they can really develop these skills, but they might just not be there yet. Um, it doesn't have to be like at the age of 16, 17, or 18, everybody's got to be ready. But uh, if there is something that somebody can progress towards, we start tell people to start to work on those skills, you know, going out on their own, learning directions, operating a stove, living independently in the home. Do you feel comfortable leaving your daughter alone at home? Um, these are the kind of first questions we start off with. So that's sort yes, of – Thank you. Yeah, I hope that helps a little bit. Yes, thanks. Well, and anything you want to comment? Go ahead. Sure. Thanks, Christy. I guess the things that I would like to think about um, in terms of your question is how do you pre are you asking how do you prepare your child or whether or not it's safe to have your child go? Because I think those are, are, are different questions and you need to examine where your child's disease state is. You know, are they stable in their mitochondrial condition? Um, are they at risk? For say having you know some type of autonomic crisis or blood sugar drop, and how do they um, how do they manage that? You know, is that something that is manageable while they're driving a car? And are they aware enough of where they are at physically so that they can make a decision that maybe today is not a good day to drive, um, but other days might be an okay to okay day to drive. Um, and then there's also the issue of just, I mean, I think most parents, when they send their kids out on the road, that's a scary thought and process overall. Um, and so then you have that added issues with concern. Um, so I guess I'm not sure, you know, if it's the process itself and how to get trained or whether or not it's safe for her to go out. A little of both. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Great question uh, and great responses as well. Thank you. Anyone else have a question they'd like to ask? Okay. Um, I think uh, a question came in over email, and um, they wanted to know, you know, sometimes I think it's tough to, parents are hesitant for younger children to explain to their kids their diagnosis because they are worried that then they'll go read about it and be scared. And, and so I think, you know, backing up in age a little bit, when do you first start to tell your child what their diagnosis is and, and how do you approach that? Because I think parents worry that their child will be, um, you know, afraid of dying or they'll look things up themselves. And, you know, that that's part of being independent when you have an illness. What do you guys think about that? Christy, I'm going to jump in on this one. I kind of feel like, um, you know, the parent has to feel comfortable with it. But I think basic information without details, I mean, you know, it's, I, I guess when I think about sex education and talking, you know, to kids about it, it's, you know, in, in many respects, you know, the same thing where you, you give the children the information that they need or as brief as possible, you know, at the beginning and then begin to build on it. Um, you know, I, I think as parents, we're worried about our kids' medical fragility, but candor, I think, does play a role because I think, you know, kids ultimately have choices on what they do and we want them to be prepared, you know, to make choices that we think are the best for them. And if they're not educated enough, sometimes they don't have that information, you know, they need in order to make good choices. Yeah, I think. I mean, Go ahead, Doctor Shaw. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would agree with that. It's uh, it's a very personal question. Um, it's a great question, uh, and it's challenging with all the information out there. 
I mean, one thing that we can say for sure is that uh, I think that a good way to go about it is knowing the good places to get the resources because we all know we Google something on the Internet and how many hundreds of things. Some of it's not true, some of it is true, and some of it's just not said in a very nice in a in a good way. Uh, um, and so, you know, uh, kind of educating our, our, our families and our children to get information from the right places and understanding that not everything they read on the Internet is true or uh, even on some reputable sites and, you know, the vagueness of some of the information that's out there. I think that'll that'll go a long way um, so the kids can kind of discern some of that information themselves. But, um, and, you know, in some of the focus groups that, that we run, we've had children sort of ask Similar types of things in a sense that, you know, they, they were worried about getting information about um, or they were worried when other people would say things in front of them saying, oh, you know, he or she has a 10% chance of dying and they would say it to their parents and not to them and they were in the room at the same time and it would sort of freak them out and this is what they have said in their focus group. So it's a very legitimate concern and I think that, you know, sort of like protecting our children from some of the, uh, some of the other information and everything that goes on out in the, in the world and some of the information about their own condition. I think knowing where reputable sources are and maybe educating them might, might uh, help. I mean, uh, you know, the NIH, the Genetic Center, uh, Center there, maintains some very concrete sort of factual information. Um, and certainly the, founda- your, the, the various foundation websites, uh, I think they do a great job of really being good and family-centered, appropriate uh, information. Great. Uh, okay, so we're running out of time. Does anybody want to ask one last question? Okay, uh, Dr. Shaw and Anne, you were so thorough that I think you you actually did a great job probably answering a lot of the questions that people had at the beginning because you provided um, some great food for thought information as well as some specific resources. Um, Anne, I just do want to um, piggyback on what you said at the end, the, the tools to thrive um, Tools for Transition kit is really great and um, a wonderful service of our friends at ThriveRx. So I wanted to encourage everyone to request that. So, Anne, will you just repeat how someone can get that toolkit? Absolutely. Thanks, Christy. You can uh, drop an email to info at thriverx.net or you can call uh, the toll free number at 888 684. 7483 and request a copy of the transition toolkit. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. We really appreciate um, all of your support. And um, if you have any questions or we can be an additional help, I'd be glad to forward your questions along to Dr. Sean and you can email me, director at uh, mitoaction.org. So everybody have a, a great holiday and the rest of 2013. Join us in January. Uh, we will be having our annual Mito Town meeting. And that will not be the Friday that's um, right after New Year's, but actually on Friday, January 10th. Uh, what we do is we have a a wide open forum where I invite people from the summer camps who have programs for kids with special needs and with Mito to um, other organizations and we just kind of take turns and showcase everything that's planned for 2014 and also ask for the input of our community on things they'd like to see happen. So please join us for our Mito Town meeting on January 10th and if you don't already get the Mito Action emails that's the best way to stay 
up to date, so you can subscribe right on the homepage of our website, which is mitoaction.org. Okay, everyone, have a great holiday. Dr. Shaw and Anne, you were so phenomenal today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and this wonderful information. And uh, we hope that you continue to be able to partner with us. Thank you. Thank you, Christy. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much for having us, and hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Good you. Day. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.